Hey everyone, welcome to Be The Change. My name is Lily Mott, and today I'm going to be talking about how change comes when we focus on unlearning and relearning. My guest this week is Isaias Hernandez, and I had so much fun with this conversation and learned a lot too, so I can't wait to share it with you today. Isaias is an environmental educator and a content creator, and his Instagram is at QueerBrownVegan. So if you want to check that out while you're listening, I definitely recommend it, but I'll also share his account at the end of this episode too. I got to talk with Isaias all about his work in environmental justice, so without further ado, let's get started with this episode featuring Isaias Hernandez. My name is Isaias Hernandez. I am an environmental educator and the content creator of Queer Brown Vegan. It's an educational platform that really seeks to provide introductory frameworks for people entering the environmental movement through colorful graphics, illustrations, and green screen education. And I truly believe that environmental education should be public and free rather than privatized. And so um, the creation of Queer Brown Vegan came back in 2019 when I was really realizing that I wasn't using using my environmental science degree in my full-time career. And so I decided to create this educational graphic account to really just inspire other people to have these discussions in a non-traditional classroom setting where they don't need to feel judged or graded about what they're going to say about the issue or topic. So since then I have a large community and yeah, I'm really just passionate about sustainability and environmental education. Welcome to the show, Isaias, and I'm so excited to meet you. I love your Instagram account, and I've been really looking forward to talking with you. So I'd love to start off by asking you to tell me a little bit more about your background and maybe some of the experiences that led you to really get involved in environmental justice and in this work. Tell me more about what got you to this point. Yeah, of course. I would say that, you know, my parents had immigrated from Mexico in the 1980s and had my brother and sister and I later in the 90s. And my whole life, I grew up low income. Like I remember living off of affordable housing, food stamps and having to take the public full metro in Los Angeles. And one of the things that I really remembered always is the amount of noise and air pollution in my community. And this was like due to the fact that I live right next to train tracks in the Metrolink. And also I live nearby chemical facilities. And when I was little and I was going to other elementary schools because I was transferred out, um, I realized the amount of environmental inequities that certain cities had just from going from like the part of the valley where I was from to the richer parts of city valleys. And so I had this curiosity of like, you know, I grew up recycling cans, not because I wanted to do it because it's sustainable, it's rather because it was seen as survival. And the recycling economy is very normalized in LA and in New York too. And when I was learning these concepts about like recycling or gardening and education, I kind of felt like ashamed because the way that I learned education, environmental education was through grassroots or through direct contact experience, which is not so pretty doing that work. And I kind of felt conflicted of like, well, I don't have access to soil. I don't have access to a backyard. I don't have access to all these resources. So to me, it doesn't really make sense learning about these things when it doesn't impact me. And so 
as I got older, you, you know, in early 2005 to 2008 in middle school, like, you know, global warming was, it was framed that way. And I kind of was invested in, you know, Nat Geo and Discovery Channel were some of the most favorite channels I love to watch. And it talked about the heating of the planet. But something I realized is like, it never really reflected back to people. It was just always about animals and conservation and biodiversity being lost, which is true. And as I got older, I started to be becoming more curious and I started getting more in trouble in the classroom by asking questions of like, well, why do we need to go to these rich communities and clean up their trash when they're over here telling us that we're dirty and poor and that we deserve to live this way? I don't see the point of this being an environmental educational trip when that's it's not rooted the same way. And so more and more, I got this like curiosity and eventually evolved into this understanding that the zip codes that we live in have are the highest indicators to tell you whether you have like risk in um, your water, your air, your soil. And that kind of got me to this larger structure of like, I had always believed it's because my parents were poor, people who were poor who didn't work hard in life, they deserve to normalize injustice in their backyard. And in reality, it was a fact of systemic racism and policies and practices that really inflicted um, people of color to live in these environmental and injustice neighborhoods. So I think that's kind of like what confirmed me in high school to do environmental science at Berkeley. And I realized back then of like, in order to be environmentalist, I need to be taken seriously, which is why I need to do this degree. And so I went through this educational four-year degree and then I realized, wow, there's so much racism, sexism, elitism, ableism, homophobia, like there's so many issues in these classes. And yet every time I'm in these classes, it seems like the dominant Western science perspective is seen as so much more than indigenous grassroots science. And how do I balance them both in this in these discussions? And so I think after graduating from there, I realized like I had this like very holistic lens of how I viewed the environment and topics and the way it kind of talked about things, sometimes the people, my friends would always be like, do you have a Tumblr? You do write about this. And I say, no. And so I think the idea of career bounding became the fact of like, you know, I have this degree and I have this much resource. It's like, I might as well just redistribute them in a way that's like, I don't care who uses it because at the end of the day, like my work and my writing isn't always rooted in my own, like, yes, it's my personal experiences, but I do reference science. I do reference authors and people who have coined terms because um, that's how like accreditation works and solidarity works. But it's also important for me to recognize that like so many young people do not have access to environmental education and they don't have the right tools to communicate, which is why I always push for people to get those free resources. That's so interesting. And you really are providing so many free educational materials and you've made them so accessible on social media. So you're helping with your content creation. I saw on your website, one of the big topics you're educating people about is climate doomism. And I would love for you to talk some about and maybe explain that concept because it's a term I've heard before, but would love to learn more about. Can you explain what climate doomism is and why it's such an important problem in environmental justice? Yeah, no, definitely. So I would say climate doomism is best described as the anthropogenic actions that are causing the heating of the planet, which is leading to the ecological collapse of ecosystems. 
And doom, doomism, right? Or doom is not really um, new in this in this rhetoric, right? Doomism is often related to a lot of folklore cultures, or as you can say in mythological readings of the doomsayer, right? There's always that one person who's preaching, saying that we're all going to die and we need to repent our sins. And so, climate doomism is a way that a lot of climate deniers um, and anti-environmentalists use to disempower collectivized movements. And so Western media has played a really huge role in trying to really disrupt this narrative. And the people who write about this narrative are people who are not well equipped enough to talk about the cultural resiliency in grassroots movements. And so I think it's a fact to say that we divide this reality, right? It is a fact the planet is heating. It is a fact that biodiversity is being lost at a massive rate. And it is a fact that we have much more emissions than we've ever had in industrialized era. But the thing is is that what's often being missed in climate optimism rhetoric and presentations that's um, being talked about is the idea that the whole idea of this collapse is due to human supremacy. And the reality of painting it as a human supremacist issue is a bit problematic due to the fact that we know that corporate power and political elite people have had the highest influences to really um, integrate environmental degradation and colonialism to many developing countries. And so the issue what I see about when people say human supremacy is that it really blames a lot of people to really use this idea as we as species like are the ones killing the planet. I think that when we when we do that, we kind of disregard and erase the work that indigenous communities have done or people like your parents or people like my parents or grassroots activists have done to really fight against these industries. And so I think it's easy for a lot of Generation Z and millennials to get really um, shrouded with ecological anxiety because of this, because it seems like almost our life has been ripped away. The moments of our happiness, the moments of our kinship and relationships with people is slowly deteriorating. And so I think that when we look at climate doomism through this anti-environmental lens is that the first thing that they have really put out, right, is denialism, right? Rejection of science, saying that that science is flawed, that this is an alternative view. And then we have this disempowerment, right? And what this disempowerment is doing is that it's related to climate doomism, saying that, you know, in order for us to crush these people's hope, the ones who are in this movement still, like, why don't we just say that it's no point in trying to fight anymore? Let's join them and to disempower them. And the next thing after what a lot of people who experience doomism is the fact that we become divided in these movements. And this is why you see these long-term active conversations with your family or friends or siblings saying like, well, it doesn't matter what I do because it's pointless. And so this is what this is then what becomes this idea of like, well, what are we teaching our younger generations and our older generations that this doesn't matter anymore because it's we're going to die. And so this is something that I feel like, yes, you can feel hopeless and you can feel hopeful at the same time. I don't think that we kind of live in this binary view of like, today I'm happy. It's like, that's a lie. Sometimes I'm happy and there's other days later in the evening, I become depressed or really sad because I'm going through a lot of mental health crises. And so I think that's what a lot of people need to signify is like, yes, there are moments that you can feel disempowered. There are moments that you can just feel like you wake up, you're like, I just can't do anything today. And you should not feel blamed for yourself because at the end of the day, corporations are non-human logos. They are not real people who are committing these war crimes against many indigenous communities. And so climate doomism for me is really um, this way that it, it's used a lot in the media to kind of 
highlight a lot of people who are dying in these spaces, but the people who are being dying in these spaces are people from global north rich countries and then those are white people and it's kind of this idea of like it shouldn't take white people to die from the climate crisis for people to start caring when a lot of black indigenous people of color had been dying from natural disasters and we've seen this recently um, in Kentucky what just happened with the tornado there's so many facets to that term so thank you for explaining that because it's definitely something that we all need to be aware of when we're discussing climate change and considering the future of that issue so i'm really interested in one of the descriptions that you have in your instagram bio and that's un relearning i'd love for you to explain that term and how it applies to your life and to the work you're doing now yeah, no, I love this. So I would say that in to begin with is like a lot of us are indoctrinated by the systems we live in, whether that's culture, whether that's religion, whether that's capitalism, whether that's just our own family beliefs that we've grown up with. And in these beliefs and in these systems, there's often times of homophobia, transphobia, like all the isms that exist that make us more fragmented as beings. And so what I talk about in unlearning was the first stage to recognize the pain and power that you may have been perpetuating, right? And especially myself in college, something that I feel that younger me was and seeing a lot of college students around me was this idea of call-in culture, right? Like, oh, you didn't say this correctly. You perpetuated this. And it's like, yes, I did perpetuate a lot. Of, and I need to address that I'm not perfect and I'm working actively to be anti-racist, imperialist, and colonialist because some of the values that I've been forced to adopt due to my survival is really toxic for my health and toxic for communities. And that takes decades of unlearning. And I think a lot of people really think unlearning is this beautiful process of like, I'm learning how to love myself again. It's like, you don't know how to love yourself until people hold you accountable for your errors. And that's when people run away. And that's the most hurtful because I've had a lot of friends who like, when challenged by me and they've challenged me too, it's like they've, they've chosen to really ignore me or take it as like, I'm hating them. And so there's moments where I think unlearning needs to be done a lot in the environmental movement to understand that the ideas of the crises we're facing isn't because of just humans being mean people. It's literally people in the system that have perpetuated white supremacist tendencies to inflict damage and to displace indigenous communities is what we're fighting against this larger system, not exact, not necessarily white people. And so that is something that I feel like a lot of people are recognizing or trying to identify now. The other thing I think about relearning is the fact of like, yes, once you've gotten to a point where you've challenged those dominant beliefs that you uphold, what is it that you're going to do to build upon that? And so with relearning, I think about it as a way to not address your errors or to fix your errors, but to be a better environmentalist, not just for yourself as a social status person of like, look how much I've grown, but for a better example of how our society should work. And I think relearning is one of my favorite stages that I've been taking time to really learn of like, yes, I've done all this unlearning, but how are you going to apply it now to your relationships, to your friendships, um, to the people you meet that you don't know, to the people who do not have the similar beliefs and values as me. And I think it's easy to like, like, you know, say when someone disagrees with you to be like, you know, what, I don't need to listen to you. But it's like sometimes hard to have those conversations that I've had a lot with my community about my own beliefs and their own beliefs. And it's like, well, I disagree with that. But that's not saying that, like, you're wrong. It's just saying, like, the way that I've centered my work is through this lens. And I think not 
we're not going to always agree, but I do want to see the best for ourselves to be able to continue existing in this movement because what we need is unity and unison rather than division. And I think relearning has helped me become a better person to every every being on this planet. And I'm not perfect, of course. I know I have my days, but I think it allows me to really apologize to my younger self of this self-shame and rather feel more collectivized vulnerability to others. Definitely. I think giving yourself some room to learn and to grow as a person is so important because you'll never be able to really have important conversations if you don't put yourself out there and accept that you'll be wrong sometimes or maybe that you'll misunderstand something at some point. Everyone does. So I have one last question for you. Lots of young people, particularly college students, high school students, want to create change, but they may not know where to get started. Do you have any advice for those people who may be listening? Yeah, I would say that, you know, my wisdom is always knowing your friends and collaborations, right? Before I created Career Brown Vegan, in, when I graduated college, I created this environmental magazine with my best friend. She was a year younger, so she was still an undergrad, and I had just graduated. It was called Alluvia Magazine. And we just had this passion for art, social media, and writing. And we're like, let's just create this magazine and see how it goes. And honestly, it was a really hard project. I had to, I had to, we had to do fundraising, we had to do event planning, we had to do like um, photo shoot planning. It, it took a lot of work for two people, but because it was such a grassroots project, it really allowed me to understand like these are ideas that don't necessarily need to come from institutional lenses because why bother waiting for an institution to approve your funding or to say, oh, you know, maybe that's not a good idea. Write a research paper instead. I said, you know, we said, no, we want to create something that's outside of this for community. And so we created it. So I would tell people it's like, take risks, right? Like you don't always need to be a content creator. You can be someone who writes, someone who does poetry, someone who does modeling, someone who does photo shoots. Like there's so, there's so much diversity in the environmental movement that that's what really encompasses the true beauty of it. And I always tell people like, often at times it's so easy to compare ourselves on social media to be like, you know, I want to create this account. I want to create a zine or something. And it's like, look at this account. Like they have so many more followers than me. It's like, you know, that's the worst thing that we can do is to compare ourselves and rather to really take those relationships and take risks of like, how do I build a relationship with someone actively, right? How do I humanize someone rather than to not put them on a pillar? And I think for me, something I've told my team straight up too is like, whenever we work, it's like, we will work with anyone as long as they can respect me and they respect you all. That's all, that's, I don't care like what status they have. To me, I'm more oriented towards um, grassroots people, people who are in college, people in high school, um, than these celebrities who often want to just like use me as their doll or their trophy. I'm like, that doesn't work that way. So I think staying true to your community is going to allow you to do that. And also ask questions and become, and ask directly, get to know people. Like I've, always like told people like if anyone ever wants to like talk to me for an hour just to talk about their career their life like let's do it more and more open than talking to someone who's 40 or in their late 30s because that can be a little bit intimidating but I tell people it's like I graduated college three years ago so it's like I still have some direct experience being a college student and sometimes get confused for being 22 so it's like those are things that like I always tell people like you know get out there and do some work and it's not always needs to be seen by everyone it could be it could just be seen locally
I loved Isaiah's energy and his passion for the work he's doing, and I think it really came through in our conversation. I want to highlight the point that Isaiah made about unlearning and relearning, because I think it's such an important piece of advice for people, especially those who are trying to become more involved in change making. It's completely understandable to be afraid of being canceled or being called out for saying the wrong thing, but I think Isaiah's advice made me understand that we shouldn't be afraid of being corrected or called out. Instead, we should take those moments, if they happen, as learning experiences and opportunities to acknowledge the way that our biases, backgrounds, or maybe privileges may have led to misinformation or misunderstandings. We should be grateful when people correct us, and we should take it as a chance to heighten our understanding. Because, as Isaiah explained, change comes when we focus on unlearning and relearning. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and you can follow Isaiah on Instagram at QueerBrownVegan to get connected with him. If you want to talk about anything I mentioned, please reach out to me by email at lily at bethechangepodcast.org or on Instagram at bethechangepodcast. Tune in for my next episode, but until then, be the change you wish to see in the world. Bye, guys.